If you would look with me this morning now at John's Gospel, in the seventh chapter, John 7. find ourselves coming toward the end of Jesus' time at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the passage before us this morning is one that I pray God uses greatly in my heart and in your heart as we work our way through verses 40 through 44 this morning, but I'd like to, if I can, read all the way down through the end of chapter 7 from verse 40, so let's begin there. Some of the people, therefore... When they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, no, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid his hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed him, have they? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, We know that you are not the author of confusion. We know, Father, that you are a God of clarity. And for that, we're thankful. There's enough confusion in our world today. The one place we can go, the one refuge we have is to your word and to you. Where you have spoken, not only authoritatively, but clearly. And so, Father, this morning, my prayer and my desire for your people, for my own heart and my own life, is that the clarity of who Jesus is would so pierce any confusion in our minds that Christ would be known and would be believed upon. Because of who he is. And so, Father, this morning, magnify yourself as a God of clarity through your revealed truth that is your Son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, apply the knowledge of what we hear in your word to our minds and to our hearts that we might know Christ, that we might believe him and not be found in unbelief. Which is to say, To be led into confusion. But may it be clear to us. More so now than ever. Who Jesus is. And may we rejoice in him. Through faith. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
There's so much confusion in the world today. The good news is someday that confusion is going to end. The bad news is that for those who will not have trusted in Jesus Christ, is that the confusion is going to end. The confusion and chaos of this world, apart from what God reveals and what is true, because God is true and every man a liar, the confusion and the chaos is temporal. It is tied to a fleeting world and a fleeting life, one that has fallen into sin and is, and really, brothers and sisters, tainted by sin at every turn. I, I think we're wise to slow down just a moment in the age that we live in and understand that the problems and the confusion we see around us are not sociological, they're not political. They're spiritual. Because of sin, everything is in the state of chaos and confusion that it is. And nowhere is that more magnified than in the view of Jesus Christ that is held by sinners. Such confusion about Him, such rejection of Him. And it is confusion that is sadly going to transcend the boundaries of time for those who reject Jesus. It will be chaos that is eternal in its consequence. My prayer is that when we look at this passage, this is just not part of the story as it continues to unfold, but that it would penetrate our hearts. That it would illumine our minds. So that there is no confusion among us as to who Jesus is. As to what Jesus has come to do. And it may say, I know who Jesus is. I was in Sunday school. I, I had the flannel graph story. I've watched, you know, the kids' cartoons about who Jesus is. Oh, I, my parents told I know, I know. It's academic. Let's move on. But there is knowing Jesus, and then there is knowing Jesus. On Christ, there can be no confusion. On Christ, there must be clarity. And if there is not clarity, the fault is not in the Word of God. The fault is not in the person of Christ. The fault is in us that sin has still blinded us. Because God has revealed His Son in such a way that there is no confusion in His perfect revelation of Jesus. Here this morning as we find the interaction of this crowd now among themselves, we find them postulating over the confusion about who Jesus is. The crowd seems to embody that old saying that you've probably heard so many times that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, Or he is Lord. He's either a liar here. He's either a lunatic. Or he is the Lord of glory. As he proclaims himself to be. And I want you to notice the postulations of the crowd. As they are gathered here. And debating among themselves. Beginning in verse 40. Now some of the people. Some of the people. 
Therefore, when they heard these words, when they heard Jesus talking in the preceding verses about the Holy Spirit and about these things, they started to say, they are saying among themselves, and again, it's that frenetic, constant uh, chatter. They are saying, certainly, this is the prophet. Now, I will say that these are not the people of the religious leadership. I think these are well-intentioned, well-meaning, good people. These these might even be, if if we're going to use our context here, we might even say these are Bible Belt Christians. They're not hostile to Jesus whatsoever. They're actually encouraged. They say, well, this surely this is a prophet. They know Enough about the Bible to know that there was going to come a time, as Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that another prophet like him would arise. And surely this is him. This is the next step of God's ongoing revelation of himself. And so we don't look at these people and fault them and say, tish, tish, you skeptics. These people are sincere. They're genuine. And they say, certainly this man is is that prophet. I mean, after all, let's think about what Jesus has been talking about. Jesus has been talking about two things that are eminently important in the Jewish mindset as they think about their past history. Jesus has said, number one, I am living water. And their minds would instantly be taken back to that time when Moses is leading them and water comes forth from the rock to water the thirsty children of Israel. They know the story. That they've been to Jewish Sunday school. They've been told. Jesus then goes on to say, not only am I living water, I am the bread of life. You remember your fathers had manna. Jesus helps them connect the dots. See, you remember your fathers, they had manna that fell from heaven. But I'm telling you, I'm not manna that just falls out of heaven. I am eternally satisfying, living bread. And Jesus is doing miracles and Jesus is speaking truth. And their their mind goes back to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Hey, this has got to be him. He's drawing correlations to Moses. He is speaking as one sent from God. Even the guards realize this. No man speaks like Jesus. He's unique in his authority. So there are these in the crowd who... Say, certainly, this has to be the prophet that Moses spoke about. And we can commend them for their sense of reverence and their sense of expectation. Even their sense of belief of the word of God, that they believe that this is coming to fruition. And so we, we, we can't exactly say they're wrong But we may not also say that they're right. 
Because while Jesus is a holy man, Jesus is more than just a holy man. Jesus is more than just a prophet. Jesus is the God-man. He is not simply a prophet sent. He is God sent as God in flesh. These people see the, the, the nature of his prophetic office, but they do not see him in his office as God, in his person as God. Jesus is simply a good man. He's a great teacher. He is a prophet. Listen, you can get a Muslim to agree with that. You can get a Mormon to agree with that. But you can't get the Bible to agree with that. And therein lies the dilemma that though they come so close, they're not quite there. Not only... Do false religions embrace this view of Jesus? But I'm afraid shallow Christianity does as well. That there is a Jesus who exists. And oh, well, yeah, we, we have respect for him. We, we have admiration for him even. We even at times express our love for Jesus. So long as Jesus is the one who proves himself by accommodating our felt needs, and that's what the crowd's been after. Do more, Jesus. Give us more to eat. Give us more to do. The law's not enough. We need more. Jesus, do more. Help us to feel better about ourselves. Give us things that we can do and boast in. Jesus is not that kind of a prophet. He's not that kind of a savior. This man is more than a prophet. Because even the prophets do not speak like him. Notice what the guards say a few verses later. No, no, no man speaks like this. Not even Isaiah. Not Jeremiah. Not even Moses. Because the prophets speak for God Jesus speaks as God. Big difference. Jesus doesn't footnote anyone. He is the source. Jesus doesn't quote anyone trying to make the argument. He is the argument. He is so different, so above, so beyond, so excellent that no man speaks like Jesus. These people who see him as a prophet, they're they're no doubt amused. They're they're intrigued. They love that he looks so much like Moses. They're fascinated by his words. They see the deeds so closely mirror what they have shaped in their mind as to the way things should be. And we all know how dangerous expectations wrongly formed and guided can be. How many problems that can create. And so they have these expectations and Jesus seems to meet those lowly expectations. Lowly because they're not looking for God. They're simply looking for a prophet. And yet these people, these poor people, these blinded people, 
are still unable to come by faith to the position wherein they ascribe to Jesus the very personhood of God. It does no good to see Jesus as the best of men and not the creator of man. It does no good to see Jesus as a great teacher and not to see him as the very source of all truth, truth itself. Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3 will not allow the Jewish people to remain in this state of partial acceptance of who Jesus is. A kind of halfway position, having to pick the splinters out of their backside because they ride the fence. Peter won't tolerate it. In fact, if you would look over with me at Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, emboldened by the Spirit in his preaching, begins in Acts chapter 3. In verse 17, he says this, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, now here's Peter preaching a New Testament sermon, quoting exactly what these people are thinking. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise... All who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying Abraham and uh, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Hey, you can't just say that this is the prophet that Moses promised without also saying that this prophet is Messiah. These two must be joined together in your mind. There is no place for confusion. Otherwise, you will perish in your sins. You will be wiped away. Because of your rejection, your refusal to see that Jesus is not just The prophet in that sense, but he is the prophet Messiah. This is one group. The second group occurs in verse 41. And may I say at the beginning that only this postulation about who Jesus is is the correct one. None of the others are right. But there are still others in the crowd, and we praise God for this, right? Finally. Finally, there is somebody who gets it. 
that there is somebody in the crowd who is starting to recognize the truth here. Others in the crowd were saying, this is the Christ. Unequivocally. This is Him. What a joy to be able to make that statement. What what a joy to have that confidence. This is God in flesh. This is promised Messiah. This has got to be Him. And they draw the right conclusion. The Holy Spirit gives them that miracle of regeneration that causes sinners to be enlivened to the truth of who Christ is. And they believe and they unequivocally confess this is Him. Some scholars have drawn the conclusion that they reach this in part because of what Jesus has just said about the Holy Spirit. No one else talks about that. No one else has connected those dots. And yet Jesus has, and it is without doubt, we know this, if any man comes to an acknowledgement, a realization of the truth, it isn't that he came to it on his own, but the Spirit of God has revealed that to him, right? Well, we don't do that on our own. Jesus says to even Peter, the first among equals among the apostles, when Peter confesses him to be the Christ, he says, very good. But flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Spiritual truths, spiritually understood and discerned, These people, obviously, the Father has worked in them by the Spirit so that they too are coming to Peter's conclusion. Not only had Jesus given proof of his work, but he did so in such a way that he accompanied it with words that were meaningful. Words that hit their mark. Words that did not deny the Old Testament, but rather fulfilled the Old Testament. In every possible way. No one else in the history of Israel had ever been able to speak of eschatological proof that he was the Messiah like Jesus has done when he speaks of the Holy Spirit coming. Nobody talked like that. Only Jesus has and only Jesus can. Not even the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, could speak with that type of clarity and certainty. Only the Messiah could, and he did. No false messiahs then or now speak of life created within. Have you ever noticed that? False teachers never get to the heart. They stay on the surface. They stay with outward things. They don't talk about the necessity of a new heart and a new life that's created in Christ. They don't speak about sin and things of that nature. But Jesus does. Jesus speaks of new life that will be created within such that it will be waters, living waters that proceed forth forever in a rushing stream from the one in whom the Holy Spirit has worked. That new life 
that has been created. Nobody talks like that. Except Jesus. And it all fits with everything we learn in the Old Testament. And it all is met with the power of the Holy Spirit in His preaching and His teaching. You know, this becomes really the defining mark for Jesus' own ministry as he prepares to leave his disciples. And you think about the things in your own life as you prepare even to go on a a short vacation. Those final hours at home, that final day at home is met with, you know, doing the things that are really important. You make preparation so that you don't come home to, a you know, a flooded house. You don't come home to animals who starved to death in the backyard because they weren't fed. You make important preparations toward the end, and as Jesus prepares to leave this earth, he spends a great deal of time in chapters 14 through 16 of John talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that will bring life, that will bring conviction of sin, that will point to the assurance that there is in Christ, that will... Uh, bestow comfort upon his disciples, on and on we could go. And these people here making this statement about Jesus, this is the Christ. They've heard things they've never heard before. Not because they're not true and not because they've never been said, but because they've never been said like this with the authority, with the clarity, with the connection. And they come to confess, this is the Christ. If you go back to Isaiah 53, I'm coming more and more to the conclusion that Isaiah 53 is one of those passages of Scripture that is an already but not yet component. That it has a future component to it that this will be the sad lamentation of the people of Israel, the people whom Jesus came to address, the Peter who the people whom Peter preached to, this in eternity for those who did not accept Christ and still today will not accept Christ. This will be their lament. We saw him and yet we crucified. We did these things. This is upon us. And His blood is upon us. And yet there are these who say, No, no, no. This is the Christ. It has to be Him. O. Palmer Palmer Robertson, an Old Testament scholar, writes of the progression and fate of the Old Testament prophets as they preach the word of God and people react in hostility to the word of God being preached through them. As yet another proof, and these people are seeing it here, even as they confess Jesus to be the Christ, they see the hatred of Jesus. They see that he is the embodiment of what the prophets suffered, yet even more intensely than they ever had. This true prophet, this true Messiah has come. 
And he's been true in everything that he's said, but he's also been hated by just about everyone that he has said it to. He's the ultimate fulfillment of that office. Both in content and in response to him. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. That it is only in those in whom the Spirit is at work, that, that, that we could ever confess this. First Corinthians twelve three. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. These people, I think, are these people. They are ones in whom the Holy Spirit has worked, and they are saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior for the world. By God's grace, by the Holy Spirit's revelation to them, by His regeneration in them, they are able through His work to confess what is right and true. What I mentioned already from Matthew 16 verse 17 Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. They have genuine faith. They have real saving faith, not because they're smarter, not because they went to hear a sermon nobody else heard, not because they have some Gnostic higher knowledge that nobody else has been made privy to yet, But they have faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. They're not dancing around saying, well, he's the prophet, but he's not the Christ. They're convinced he is the very one. A few weeks ago, I was listening to something and I was reminded of a sermon that Martin Luther delivered just before Christmas 500 years ago. And writing about this kind of divide between true faith and kind of an academic faith. Hey, he's the prophet, but he's not the Messiah. Luther said this in a sermon from Matthew 21. He said, I have often said that there are two kinds of faith. First is a faith in which you indeed believe that Christ is such a man as he is described and proclaimed here and in all the Gospels. But you do not believe that he is such a man for you. And are in doubt whether you have any part in him and think, yes, he is such a man to others, to Peter, to Paul and the saints. But who knows that he is such a man to me? And that, that I may expect the same from him and may confide in it as these saints did. Hey, this is more than academic faith. This is more than he's just the prophet. And yeah, I believe all the things about him to be true. But is he that to me? Is he the Messiah to me? Luther goes on and he says, behold, this faith is nothing. It doesn't receive Christ nor enjoy him. 
Neither can it feel any love and affection for him and from him. It is a faith about Christ and not in Christ. Or of Christ. A faith which the devils also have as well as evil men. And I think that's a good point we need to stop and clarify. These religious leaders believe Jesus is who he says he is. And they don't like it. Satan and his Demons also believe and they tremble. But they do not believe as these people in the second postulation of Jesus believe. He is the Christ and He is the Christ for me. He came for me. It's like the hymn that we often play in our Easter services. It was for me he cried, for me he died, for me he shed his blood upon the tree. That's the difference. He's not just Jesus. He's not just some academic box checker from the Old Testament. It is for me. Oh, what joy, what love, what assurance is in Christ. For me, Christ is. Luther goes on and says that kind of faith alone can be called the Christian faith, which believes without wavering that Christ is the Savior, not only to Peter and to all the saints, but to you also. Your salvation does not depend on the fact that you believe Christ to be the Savior of the godly, but that he is a Savior to you and has become your own. Do you believe that? Is that who Jesus is to you? Is he the Christ for you and to you? It's not enough to have a storybook version of Jesus where we believe all the stories about him and we know all about him and and, and we can answer questions about him. But is he for you? On the day that God calls all of us to give an account and stand before Him who is completely holy and righteous, what will your plea be? That I know all the facts about Jesus. Where do I take the exam? Or will it be with tears of joy that Christ is for me? Why are you here? Because Christ is for me. Why should I permit you entrance into my presence? Because Christ is for me. He stands before you in my place right now pleading my case. It's not my righteousness. I have done. But it is His given to me by grace and by grace alone. And I receive that. I believe that. This is what these people are in contrast to what all the other responses to Jesus are. Even though they sound so close. Don't die so close. Die in Jesus. Die with Christ in you. The hope of glory. Live with Christ in you. He is your hope. He is your life. 
Don't take my word for it. Believe it for yourself. And experience the hope and the joy and the life that that flows out of you. As he said in verses 38 and 39. Experience that for yourself. But you must believe that he is the Christ. And the Christ for you. Let's go on. It gets darker. Because others... Are saying, surely this is not the Christ. Because surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? You see, this is where academic faith leads you to denial. If it is academic only, it is not of the heart, and I am not saying that there is not an academic, a head knowledge, an assent to facts that is imperative. It is, but it is not enough because you will start to find fault and question everything. These people do. No, wait a minute. We're not saying he is and we're not saying he's not, but we know where he's from. And he came out of Galilee. So doesn't that disqualify him on the grounds of... Listen, you will never come to the life of Christ in you by academic pursuit alone. Well, we know he's from Galilee. Go find in the scriptures where it says he's coming from Galilee. We know where he's come. The scripture says that the Christ, the Christ, the one whom we will finally accept, will come from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. You know the tragedy here? This denial is built built upon and predicated upon previous denials. He did come from Bethlehem, but you don't believe it. He was there. The angels announced his arrival. There was uproar in Bethlehem trying to slaughter him. It is not that he did not come from Bethlehem, it is that he did. You denied it then, so why are we surprised that you're denying it now? One rejection of truth leads to further rejection of truth. Jesus did come from that city, but he also was called a Nazarene. He would come from the city of Nazareth. He also came from Bethlehem. It is both. But they're so burrowed down in the minutia of academia that they can't accept him. It's not that they won't. It's just that he has to pass their test first. Then we'll believe. Oh, that God would guard us from such a mentality. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. I'm all for apologetics. I'm all for defending the faith because it is a rational faith. It is not absurd. Last night, the boys were showing me a video of an astrophysicist who 
is using math and these absurd I am I am not a math guy. But but he he could he put it on the bottom shelf where even I could understand it. And these absurd mathematical theoretical numbers and the way things work out that that show a consistency and a pattern throughout all of creation that proves there's a God. But you know what? That's never going to save anyone. That's a work of the Spirit, a work of Christ in us. It's not checking off the boxes. I can defend this. I can defend that. I think I mentioned it before. A lady one time came to me. She was so burdened for her son. She wanted her son to come to faith in Christ, but she only wanted to argue with him about creation versus evolution. That's a fine debate to have, but it won't save him. And so you can convince him of every verse in Genesis 1 and 2, but then what's next? It's an endless litany of academia and questions. So are these people. Because their views are so earthly, because it is built upon previous rejection, they can't see. I mean, Jesus has already given proof that he's from Bethlehem. The angels gave proof. The the, the records give proof. I mean, Joseph went and he registered for the census. Go down to the county courthouse, look up the birth records. Where did he come from? Bethlehem. Born of a virgin. Fulfilling prophecy. They won't hear any of it. And so they're left with more questions. I had a guy tell me one time, Been in seminary, was educated, was a very smart guy. But when he came to the truths of Scripture, he said, You know, I've got a lot of questions, but not many answers. How sad. How sad that you want every minutia of trivia checked before you will truly surrender to belief. All they can see is Christ came out of Galilee. That's where he just came from. That's where he just, you know, he came here, he caused trouble, chapter 5, he runs to Galilee, chapter 6, and now he's back in chapter 7. This is where this guy's come from. They're so confused. So willing to reject based on what they can prove. And they don't even do that well. Because there is proof. It is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now I want you to notice the ensuing chaos as we bring this to a close. Verse 43. I want to read this slowly because we so often hurry and miss the point. So a division occurred. A division occurred. There is no unity here. There is an actual split. One to rival most Baptist churches, I would imagine. 
there is a sharp divide in the crowd because of him. We need to come to grips with the fact, plainly stated this morning, that Jesus causes division. Jesus will divide. He causes a division between the almost believers and the true believers. He causes a division between the religious and the saved. He causes a division between the skeptics and those who will follow him. Jesus said himself he did not come to bring peace, but division. And it would go so far as to separate parents from their children, brothers from sisters, friends, establishments, even entire nations, as we see it playing out here in his earthly life. All of Israel is beginning to be inflamed and divided. And what are they divided over? One man. Jesus Christ. They have a form of faith, but it denies the power of God. They have a faith, but it is academic only. They have a faith, but it is man-centered. They have a faith, but it is results-oriented. Sound familiar? Sounds like the world we still live in today, doesn't it? Jesus causes a chasm to develop. And according to verse 44, it is a rather heated chasm. Notice what happens. So some of them wanted to seize him. What's the purpose of the seizing? From chapter 5, it is to silence him by murder. Our success... In life, as believers, cannot always be judged and determined by how peacefully we seem to have prevented Christ. You know, I've lived all of these years and I've presented Christ to so many people and it has never offended or upset anyone. That's not a measuring rod. We, we present Christ in such a way that all people can come and appreciate what we're saying. That is not the measuring stick. Because Christ, when he is properly understood, faithfully preached and clearly communicated, does one thing. It causes division. You're either for him or you are against him. And it is not he that is seeking to create the division, but it is the reality of who he is. It is the reality that we cannot believe who he is apart from the Spirit's work in us. You know, we ought to be more concerned, I think, today when people just placidly reject Jesus. If in talking of others, 
to others about Christ, if they can look at us and say, you know, I just, I, I don't think so today, but I, boy, I, I really appreciate it. And perhaps we've lacked the clarity that Jesus spoke with. Don't be deterred. Don't be considering yourself a failure when you speak the truth and truth causes division. Though we know from Peter that we are not to speak it rudely. We know we are not to do things to tarnish our testimony, to bring the, the scorn of people because of our manner. But if our message offends, let it offend. Christ is worthy of that. Christ himself embodied that. Our presentation of Christ as he reveals himself in scripture, ought to raise the ire of a world who hates him. It ought to raise the scorn of a world that is bathed in lies. Because it so goes against the grain. Again, we don't have to say it hateful. We don't have to say it in a rude manner. We don't have to be crude or crass or unbecoming in the way that we say it. But we still have to say it. Jesus does. And look at the chasm that forms. They actually want to murder him. I love what Steve Lawson says. He says, you know what the problem with preachers today is? No one wants to kill them anymore. And we can kind of chuckle at that, but it's true. We've not said enough. To offend the armies of hell. We've not been clear enough. To present Christ for who he is. Because we're scared of division. We're scared of a hostile reaction of sin against righteousness. Why are we afraid of that? Jesus wasn't afraid. Jesus spoke the truth boldly but in love. And some believed. Others did not. That's not our responsibility. Ours is to be faithful with the dissemination of a clear revealing truth about who Christ is. As he himself reveals himself here in this portion. And ours fundamentally more so is to believe. To have that faith that Luther spoke of that faith that Christ is who he is to me, for me, on my behalf. There's no confusion, brothers and sisters. Friends who are on the fence this morning, there's no confusion about Jesus. It's clear. It's clear. From the very beginning in John chapter 1 verse 14, it's been clear. The word became flesh and dwelled among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. 
It's not necessary to live in confusion. Confusion results from the willful rejection of what is clearly revealed about Jesus. It cuts through all the confusion. It cuts through all the chaos. And when the clouds of confusion and chaos are parted by the living truth, God himself, there he stands in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his saving and redeeming power to sinners. Ours is not to reason every detail, but to believe what he has revealed about himself to be true. Have you believed? You must believe. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that the weight, the glorious weight, the life-giving weight of the truth in this passage would pierce our heart, would fill our hearts. And Holy Spirit, that in your hands, this would not be twisted into debate, nor into rejection, but into joyful assurance and faith. That Christ is, and that Christ is for me. Make that the truth of every heart here this morning, of every life. That that would be true of them. That they would look to Christ and they would believe that He is and that He is for them. Given by you. As the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved. He is the ark we must enter into. He is the salvation we must cling to. For there is hope in no one else. Convince us of these things. Magnify your Son, Father, in our eyes. Holy Spirit, give us faith to believe. Joy and assurance in that belief. And for all eternity, May we worship, adoring, praising, thanking the Lord Jesus for who he is. And because of who he is, what he has done. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we ask that you would do these things. We can't do them for ourselves. We can't do them for one another. You must do them. So please, God. Do what only you can do. Convince us of the truth. We pray this all for your sake, Jesus. Amen.